Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And it's so good to start off this new year worshiping together with you. Uh, today is that rare occurrence where New Year's Day falls on a Sunday, and I really can't think of a better way to begin the year than by worshiping together. And every year, people all over the world, they take this time to make New Year's resolutions. And the top 10 New Year's resolutions are always more or less the same every year. I'm sure you've made one or more of these resolutions before. So here are some of the more popular New Year's resolutions. Number one, lose weight, get organized, spend less, save more, enjoy life to the fullest, stay fit and healthy, learn something new and exciting, quit a bad habit, smoking, drinking, and I'll add to this, be on my phone less. Number eight, help others, fall in love, and spend more time with the family. These are probably the most popular resolutions worldwide. But what about for Christians in particular? Here are the ones that I've heard the most in my time in ministry. The most popular Christian New Year's resolutions. Here they are. Number one, read the Bible. Number two, pray regularly. Attend church. Share my faith with a non-Christian. Overcome a particular sin struggle, get Christian counseling or discipleship, forgive or reconcile with someone in my life, be more joyful or content or hopeful, nine, give more generously, and finally, get involved at church, serve, join a small group. These are all laudable goals to set for ourselves in the new year. I think it's great to commit to all 10 of these things regularly, and New Year's is as good a time as any to do it. All of these resolutions, they kind of aim at one thing, which is to become a more faithful Christian. But one resolution that I've never heard in my time as a pastor is, I want to be more repentant this year. And this is unfortunate because, as Pastor Aaron talked about during our time of confession, the posture of repentance is perhaps the most appropriate attitude 
for the Christian. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, he nailed his famous 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. It inaugurated the Protestant Reformation. And he began his 95 theses with a profound statement. Here's thesis number one. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Now, on the one hand, this can seem pretty depressing. Am I to spend my entire life feeling bad about myself, beating myself up, begging for forgiveness? Is Luther saying that Christians will never make much progress? Not at all. What he's saying is the way we progress, the way we grow in the Christian life is through repentance. Tim Keller says this, pervasive all of life, repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. It is in repentance that we are the most dependent upon God and his grace. We completely give up control to him. We receive his forgiveness and salvation. This was what Martin Luther's, this was his whole point. And he had seen in his life, the Christian life kind of reduced to these sacramental works that the church required believers to participate in. But the heart of the gospel is not what we must do for God, but to receive what God has done for us in his Son. And repentance keeps that at the center. It keeps us closest and nearest to God's mercy and grace. And that is the power center of the Christian faith. My wife and I, we found out a few months ago that we are going to be having our fourth child. And to no one's surprise, it's going to be another boy. And we're at that stage now where we're kind of digging our heels into battle for what the name will be. We can never agree. And this week, as I was sermon prepping, I suggested the name to Zacchaeus, uh, the name Zacchaeus to my wife. And she said, absolutely not. (laughs) She said she didn't want to name the baby after a guy who everyone knows as the short guy who climbed the tree. And I get it, because she's the exilic kids director. I grew up going to Sunday school and and VBS, Vacation Bible School, and this story was definitely in the top ten Sunday school stories. You have David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den, Noah's ark, Jonah and the whale, and little Zacchaeus climbing the fig tree to see Jesus. And this is how the story was taught to me. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was short. He couldn't see Jesus. So what Zacchaeus did was he overcame his disability. He did whatever he could to overcome the obstacle in order to go see Jesus. So we should be like Zacchaeus. That was a lesson that was taught to me. Whatever it takes, whatever stands in your way, overcome that. Seek Jesus out. Climb a tree if you have to. This is the stuff movies are made of. Overcoming obstacles to achieve your goal. 
Don't let your short height stop you from seeing Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you you can't see Jesus. But there's so much more to this story than the moral to not give up. What we have here is one of the most dramatic and powerful conversion stories that we see in the entire Bible. Zacchaeus was probably one of the unlikeliest of people to believe in Jesus. He's a guy that you would say, that guy will never believe in Jesus. But Jesus seeks him out in order to save him. So I want to look at this explosive story today. And very simply, I just want to highlight Zacchaeus' sin, Zacchaeus' repentance, and Zacchaeus' redemption. First, Zacchaeus' sin. Zacchaeus is famous for many today because of his height. But he was famous in his time for a very different reason. The more important thing to note about Zacchaeus in this story is not his stature, but his status and consequent wealth. Verse 2 says this, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. When we think of a tax collector today, we think of W-2s. We think of government employees crunching numbers. We picture calculators and Excel spreadsheets, but back then, a tax collector was very different. And keep in mind that during this time, Israel was under Roman occupation. They were a conquered people. So all taxes, they went not to Jewish leadership, but to Rome. And the Jews hated the fact that they had to pay their taxes to their oppressors, to Rome. And the Romans... They were smart. They didn't want to go door to door and collect taxes. They were hated enough. They didn't want to do that. So what they did was they commissioned Jews to go and collect taxes for them. So these tax collectors were Jews who were working for the Romans. They were traitors, essentially, to their own people. They were hated. And this was like during the Nazi regime when the SS tasked Jews to police the ghettos. These people were hated. They had forfeited their Jewish national identity to help the oppressors. But they weren't just working for the Romans. They were getting rich in the process. They were lining their pockets, stealing from their own people. And what we have here is an elaborate criminal enterprise. This was organized crime. And the way it worked is like this. The Roman governor would demand a certain amount of money from the chief tax collectors. And then the chief tax collector would go and get his capos, his captains, his foot soldiers, to go and collect the money from the people. And then they would go and they would charge exorbitant amounts from the people. They would keep their share and they would kick up the rest until the Roman governor got his required amount. So if the Roman governor said, I want $100,000 from this neighborhood, imagine what the actual tax collectors on the ground were charging. And add to that, they had the benefit of Roman muscle. So if anyone refuses to pay the tax collectors, well, now they get in trouble with these Roman soldiers. This was organized crime here in Palestine. 
And Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of Jericho. Jericho was a very wealthy city along a major trade route. Therefore, it was one of the three major centers for collecting Israel's taxes. Zacchaeus then, he was like the godfather of one of the major crime families, or he was the boss of a major cartel. So this isn't really an underdog story of a short man who overcomes obstacles to see Jesus. This is Tony Soprano. This is Pablo Escobar if they turned on their own people. Zacchaeus is public enemy number one. What we have here is a man who has sacrificed everything. Everything for his idols, money and power. He has sacrificed community. He sacrificed all moral decency. He sacrificed his national and religious identities. But he's come to a point in his life where he's searching for something more. And he hears that Jesus, this famous rabbi, is, is this holy man, this, this miracle worker. He's coming to Jericho. And he, he feels compelled to find out more. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. In verse 4, Zacchaeus does something that no one in his position would ever, ever, ever do. Run. Running? in this first century Middle Eastern context, was completely out of form for someone like Zacchaeus. It was totally undignified. It was appropriate for children to run when they played games, or maybe at, for, on certain occasions for women to run, but older men in this culture would never run unless it was an emergency, unless they were desperate. The fact that Zacchaeus does this, it shows that he is desperate. He's come to a point in his life where he realizes that even though he's achieved what everyone thought would make him happy, he's feeling this deep sense of unhappiness, dissatisfaction with life. His whole life he's thought, if I could just have money and power, then I'll be happy. So he gives up everything to get those things it costs him relationships. It costs him the respect of his community. And as I think about Zacchaeus' situation, I can't help but relate it to what so many New Yorkers are experiencing. How many people come to our city with the same ambitions as Zacchaeus? Money, influence, power. These are the gods of our city. How many of us have also sacrificed to these idols? Our time, our consciences, our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Perhaps there are some of you who have advanced now in your careers, and you're beginning to see that that VP title, the investment portfolios, the luxury apartments, they have not solved all your problems, but have left you feeling empty and unhappy with life. How many of us here have everything the world seeks on the outside, but we're struggling deeply 
with depression, with loneliness, with self-loathing. Zacchaeus feels this, and he's at the point of desperation. He has to find out who this Jesus is. So abandoning etiquette, he runs. And he does something even more undignified. He climbs a tree because he can't see over the crowd. I like to imagine Zacchaeus up in that tree. Let's join him up in that tree for a moment. I see him kind of settling in, taking in the surroundings. He looks down at the crowds beneath him. They're pushing and shoving, trying to get a better view. And the anticipation is thick in the air. And he can hear them talking, talking about Jesus. You know, my cousin told me that he fed thousands with five loaves of bread and two fish. My uncle was a leper, and Jesus healed him. Do you hear what Jesus said about the Pharisees? My God, what do you think he's going to do here? Do you think he's the one, the Messiah? Do you think he'll overthrow Rome, restore the kingdom of Israel? And then, because he's above everyone else, he looks out into the distance, and he can see someone coming. What is Zacchaeus feeling as the dot that is Jesus becomes bigger and clearer? His heart begins to beat faster and faster. He's hidden up in that tree, but there's something about Jesus approaching that feels exposing. Jesus gets near, and Zacchaeus feels, he just knows there's something different about this man. Zacchaeus, the man who has met Roman governors with their battalions of soldiers, Zacchaeus who has met Jewish kings and princes, Pharisees, he's encountered and experienced earthly power. But this, this is something else. Jesus comes closer and closer to that tree, and Zacchaeus' pulse is now racing. What is it like to behold God himself in the flesh? Perfection itself. And as Jesus is about to pass by the tree, he stops, he looks up, and their eyes meet. Everything stops. The world stops in that moment as Zacchaeus' eyes lock with Jesus'. Zacchaeus freezes. He can't even breathe. Jesus looks at him, and then he says, Zacchaeus. There's no, there's no introduction. Jesus doesn't say, hey, aren't you Zacchaeus, the tax collector? There's no formal greeting. Hey, you, up in the tree, I'm Jesus. What's your name? What we have here is a familiarity that is startling. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. These are the words of an old friend saying, Zacchaeus, buddy, come on down, hurry, I'm coming over. There's a shocking comfort and intimacy in the way Jesus engages with him. But remember, Zacchaeus is public enemy number one. He's hated 
by his community. He's an enemy to his people, but Jesus comes to him as a friend. There's no mention of Zacchaeus' sins. There's no mention of what he has to do to make amends. Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you need to clean up your life and then we can talk. Then I can come over. Jesus meets Zacchaeus. He's a friend to Zacchaeus where he is. And we often think of it backwards. We often think we have to clean up our lives so that Jesus will love us. For example, if you haven't prayed in a long time or you've done something that you're ashamed of, you feel like you have to get back into Jesus' favor. Maybe if I put a couple of Sundays going to church together, then I can pray more. You, You have to pad your religious resume in order for Jesus to be right, but that's not the way it works. Jesus' friendship, his fellowship, his forgiveness, these things come first. And Zacchaeus must have been expecting judgment from Jesus in that moment. A holy man like Jesus would absolutely address the bad things that that I've done. He would want nothing to do with me. But in that moment, when Jesus first looked at Zacchaeus, what did Zacchaeus feel? It must have felt like Jesus was looking right through his soul. But to Zacchaeus' shock... Instead of condemnation and judgment, he receives mercy and friendship. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. I can't wait to come over. I must eat with you. Out of all these people here, I want you. I came here for you. Zacchaeus is changed. Verse 6, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Again, Zacchaeus behaves in an undignified way. He scrambles down the tree. But this time it's not out of desperation. It's out of joy. He can barely contain himself as he scrambles down the tree. Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus, he, he gets to his feet, and he says to Jesus, Look, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. If I've cheated anyone, four times I'll pay it back. This man, who was the godfather, the head of a crime family, the chief tax collector, money, power, prestige, notoriety. He had it all, all of a sudden, like a little child, scurries down the tree, stands before Jesus, can't even get his words outright. He says, look, Lord, look. Tim Keller, I love it. He says, these are the words of a four-year-old who just wants to impress his parents. Look, Mom, I cleaned my room. Look, Dad, I drew this for you. Are you happy? Does this please you? That's the attitude of Zacchaeus here. Completely changed. Whatever he can do to please this man. Behold, Lord. Look, Lord. 
In that moment, Zacchaeus has realized that he has found something so much better than anything he had ever known. I want to ask you today, have you? Have you? I want to point out several things about Zacchaeus' repentance here. Three things. Number one, he submits to the lordship of Christ. He says, look, Lord. So the first thing is he submits to Jesus as Lord. Even though Jesus comes to him as a friend, how does Zacchaeus treat Jesus? Not as a friend, but Lord. He submits to Jesus as Lord. Number two, restitution. Accepting the consequences of sin. It says, half of my goods, I, I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. But number three, the important thing is this. This is all motivated by joy, gratitude, not obligation and duty. This is Zacchaeus' repentance. It's true repentance. But you know, there's a way that you can repent that's not true repentance, that's not genuine It's selfish repentance, where you only feel remorse because of the consequences or because you got caught. You repent in order to avoid consequences. It's also possible to repent self-righteously. In this mode, repentance is like self-punishment. It's self-flagellation. If I do it enough, then I will finally convince God that I truly deserve to be forgiven. But this type of repentance, it is completely lacking of joy. There's this constant bitterness because you're trying to earn God's favor rather than thanking him for the favor that you did not deserve. If your repentance is more like this, then I hate to tell you, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Jennifer Greenberg in the Gospel Coalition, she wrote this, the eight signs of true repentance. I just wanted to share it with you now. I thought this was really good. Number one, a repentant person is appalled by sin. Appalled by sin. Zacchaeus, he, he demonstrated this. Immediately, his mind goes to the people he's hurt, the poor, the people he's defrauded. He wants to get as far away from his sin, from his past, as possible. Appalled by sin. Number two, they make amends. They make amends. Number three, they accept the consequences. Number four, they don't expect or demand forgiveness. Number five, they feel the depth of the pain that they've caused. Number six, they change their behavior. Number seven, they grant space to heal. If they've hurt people, they don't say, get over it. They grant them the space to heal. And number eight, they are awestruck by forgiveness. This is true repentance. This is what true repentance looks like. Have you experienced this repentance? Repentance that flows out of you joyfully, Because you're so amazed by grace. Have you tasted the joy of forgiveness and freedom in Christ? Because I want to tell you there's nothing better than that. Nothing. 
Now, here's the thing. We don't know if Zacchaeus ever struggled with greed again. We don't know what happens to Zacchaeus. Does he go and quit his job? Does he actually, you know, make, make, make true what he promised? It's very possible he could have. But what we see here is that in Christ there is freedom from sin. Jesus has the power to liberate us from our idols. Money had had such a hold on Zacchaeus' life. But in Jesus, he's found, thing, found something so much more valuable to him. So money becomes nothing to him. He's able to freely give it away. And Zacchaeus, he t- actually takes things further than he has to. You know, at most, Jews were required to give away one-fifth of their money, at most, to the poor. But he starts at half. And when you wrong somebody, the law only demanded that you repay double. But Zacchaeus, he goes double that, fourfold. And he does it purely out of joy and gratitude. He's a changed man. And you know what? This is something that the crowds just don't understand. Verse 7, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. They don't like this one bit. And we can relate to the crowd, can't we? Don't we hate it when good things happen to people who don't deserve it? When that girl who copied your test answers gets a better score than you? Or that, that, that shady slimeball guy starts dating the girl that you secretly love for two and a half years? We don't like that. This is much, much worse. Jesus should be canceling Zacchaeus, not befriending him. Jesus should be calling out his crimes and seeking to help the people that Zacchaeus hurt and cheated. In so many ways, grace is scandalous and offensive to the world. But Jesus says very clearly that he is on a mission to seek and save the lost. Who was more lost than Zacchaeus? Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You know, it says here that Jesus said to Zacchaeus, but he uses the third person, which is strange, right? So if I'm talking to you and I start referring to you in the third person, that's kind of strange. I think it shows that this message was meant for everybody else. When he says Zacchaeus is also a son of Abraham, what he's doing is he's telling the crowds Zacchaeus is part of the family. He's part of God's family. Therefore, he's entitled to all the benefits that come with that. He is to be treated with dignity, with compassion and love rather than hostility and judgment. Are there other believers in your life that you really hate, you cannot forgive? Perhaps you need the same reminder. He or she is also part of this family. You know, it's impossible to be truly repentant and at the same time withhold grace from others. And this is why in the Lord's Prayer, That petition, 
forgive us our debts, it comes right alongside as we forgive our debtors. You know, this still leaves us with the looming question of how Jesus can simply forgive someone like Zacchaeus. Isn't it wrong of Jesus to just overlook all the really bad things? Because he never really addresses it. Isn't it wrong for Jesus not to address it, just to overlook everything that Zacchaeus has done? I mean, think about it. How many people, really, did Zacchaeus have to step on? How many people did he have to cheat, steal from, hurt, maybe even kill? to become the chief tax collector. He must have done a lot of bad things. What if he had killed someone? How can Jesus just go over to his house and hang out with him? And the key to this is to remember where is Jesus going after this? Verse 1 tells us, he entered Jericho and was passing through. He's passing through Jericho because he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem for one purpose, and that is to die on the cross. And it's no coincidence that Luke tells us that when Jesus is crucified, he is crucified in between two thieves. Thieves. Now, these were not pickpockets. Crucifixion, it was the harshest punishment available. It was reserved for the worst of crimes. These were men who didn't just kill, or didn't just steal. They They killed. They stole on a grand scale. These were men just like Zacchaeus. On the cross, Jesus becomes Zacchaeus. All of Zacchaeus' wrongs, everything he did, his traitorous, bloody, murderous life, that all goes on to Jesus. Jesus on the cross, he pays the penalty that Zacchaeus should have paid And therefore, he's able to give himself all of his love and grace and benefits to Zacchaeus because on the cross, when Jesus dies, he pays it in full. The way Jesus finds and saves is by giving his own life, suffering on the cross. He saves by giving up everything. But did you know that on the cross, Jesus Jesus doesn't just become Zacchaeus? He became you in your sin, in your brokenness. Jesus took it all. And this is how Jesus is able to go to the fig tree. He's able to go to Zacchaeus' house, and he's able to come to you. Do you know this, Jesus? Have you tasted his grace? Is your entire life one of joyful repentance in Christ? I hope so. You know, going back to that that list of New Year's resolutions, those are great. But wouldn't it be great if we committed to living a lifestyle of repentance? You know, the one reason people don't make New Year's resolutions is because you make it one time and by next week it's broken. What if you made repentance your posture, your lifestyle? So let me, let, me, let me give you an illustration of how this might work in life. Let's say I applied this to my marriage, right? If I, if I were to go to my wife today and say, hey, I have a confession to make, that will terrify her. She'll say, what have you done? 
Where are the dead bodies? Where's your other family? That's, where, that's, that's what she's going to think, right? So what if, rather than kind of doing one big confession, what if I confessed every day? Before I'm prompted to do so, before she has a problem with me, what if I freely went to her and said, hey, you know what? I, I think I was a little short before. I'm sorry. What if, I, what if I said to her, um, you know what, I, I was a little distracted before. I, I, don't, I don't think I was really fully engaging with you. I'm sorry. What if both people in the marriage did that? That would change the marriage. That would change the marriage. What if we modeled that for our children? A lifestyle of repentance, a posture of repentance, forgiveness, and grace. I will tell you, that is explosive. That will change your family. That will change your life. That will change this world. There has never in the history of the church been revival without repentance. You know what's interesting? In the chapter right before this in Luke 18, Jesus meets another rich man, the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus And here's the thing. He wants Jesus without the repentance. He doesn't want to give up. He doesn't want to make amends. He doesn't want to give up control of his life. He wants to keep it, but he wants Jesus too. So he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the end result of it? He walks away from Jesus. And he's discouraged. He's depressed. He's sad. Contrast that with Zacchaeus. Complete transformation. Explosive power. Lifelong change. A posture of repentance. Let's pursue that in the new year. The last thing I want to say is this. If you are here today and you haven't met Jesus, but like Zacchaeus, you're you're looking for him. You're trying to figure out who he is. I want to invite you, keep climbing, keep coming, keep looking. Listen for your name because he might just be calling it. And you too may taste, experience the friendship of Jesus. There's nothing like it. Happy New Year. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Help us to treasure it in this new year. I pray that we would adopt a posture, a lifestyle of humility and repentance. That that would give us deep, inner, lasting change. And it would keep your love and forgiveness at the center of our lives. May that also extend out to our families, our friendships, our workplaces, and in this world. We thank you for who you are, for what you've done. May we, like Zacchaeus, say, look, Lord, and have that posture every day. We pray this in Jesus' name.